0: Hello and welcome to The Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. My name is Mark DeVoe. And I'm Mark State. And as always, a huge... Huge thank you
1: to the good people who keep this show on the road. That's our patrons over on Patreon and our academates on the Bestseller Academy. We've got three, three count them, three patrons uh, this week. Uh, we've got Rebecca McFarland, Fiona Scott, and Carol Owen. Everyone, budge up at the back of the bus and make more room. Uh, thank you, Rebecca, Fiona, and Carol. Um, what do you get if you uh, if you support this podcast? Well, if you go over to Patreon, become a chart topper supporter, you get access to over 130 deep dive episodes. And some of those recent episodes, we've had them on police procedurals. We've had them on forensics. We've had them on search engine optimization. We've had them on marketing. We've had them on, on Paul Lost in Ottawa Ard- recently talking about how to earn a thousand dollars a month as an independent author. It's just amazing stuff. You won't regret it. And on the Academy, you get me and Mister D. As your tutors, you get one-to-one sessions, you get weekly surgeries, we get craft coaching, life coaching, uh, tons of great courses, the whole shebang. So uh pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support to discover how to support the podcast. And the academy, what's the what's the academy website, Mr. D? It's academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. Links in the show notes. Fantastic stuff. Brilliant. How have you been doing, sir? I'm good, I'm good. I'm uh, I'm just uh I'm still in first draft land, uh, but I'm just I'm just at a tipping point as I go into the final act. And what I start doing with this, I just take a moment to write down where all my characters are at that moment, and what just to remind myself what the hell they've been up to for the last seventy thousand words. And I'm about to push them over the edge into the third act. So uh, having, having lots of fun uh, making the lives of my characters miserable.
0: How about you, Mister <laughs> D?
1: How's, how's it been going?
0: Well, I, I, I've got a title for a new um, a new holiday book called. Camping with COVID. <laughs> oh, God, no. I know. I finally had a week off. I like, I, these are a rarity in my life. Uh, <laughs> but finally had a week off. We went to our favourite campsite by a beautiful river. Picture the scene, Mark. Mm, Kids splashing idyllic. in the water. Yeah, you know, smell of bacon frying in the background. It's Just mm-hmm. perfect. And then the sore throat. And I'm like, oh, this isn't good. And my my girlfriend got the sore throat as well. And then we didn't realise this, but for the whole of the camping trip, we both basically had COVID, which we should have really worked out because we both decided to do that crazy thing. We dared each other to dive into the river at 8am in the morning. And I'm this isn't okay. Just to put this in perspective. We're talking British Columbia. These rivers are coming from snow-capped mountains. Mm. Beautiful, like you, literally. The water is sparkling, beautiful, crystal but, clear. Yeah. My God, is it cold? <laughs> 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 okay. Any anyone out there in 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 podcast listenerland who does that thing where they do that? Um, what do they call it, the polar polar swim, or the? They go out like all every morning, and they dive into the ocean Regard. i have so much respect for you <laughs> it's just incredible i mean my gosh i i'm one of, i was that kid who i i don't know what it is but just never did well with cold water to, i'm the i'm the kid that used to kind of skirt around the swimming pool you know yeah. ledge center yeah. for like you know yeah. 20 minutes didn't in. In. Yeah. and and but no this time i was all in i was just like right walk in straight no messing about but my gosh that that probably didn't help, did it? If I had, if we, had COVID, we didn't realise we had COVID. So yeah, but, but the, the great thing is we're better to open your notepad where you can't really do anything anyway because you're not feeling great. But I, I got this little hammock set up, Mark. Oh, nice. It's, Essential. It's the best. I had so <laughs> many comments, people walking past our little campsite going, I need one of those. I'm, all, all the blokes, actually, I need one of those. I need that. Um, and I literally spent the whole week suspended uh, in, in, in swing motion. I had my notepad and I wrote like about 80 pages of notes for this nonfiction experiment that I'm almost going to commit to, not quite, but um, yes, all flowing. It's fascinating. And what I've realized, this is a weird, I'm going to make all kinds of connections now with nonfiction and fiction, but I'm in the world building stage of a nonfiction series potentially. Okay. Because I've started to look at it and thinking, now that's, that's, I, that's, these are two, three, now it's four books. I can't, I can't do all that. Anymore. And I'm starting to look at it. I know it's mental. Now, I do know everyone's shouting, yeah, right, procrastination. He's in world building stages is mm. another. But I suddenly realized that there, you know, why don't we take this concept of world building from the fiction world and use it for nonfiction? Because as we know, write a series, you know, write whether, and, so many nonfiction books are just standalones. So many of them, right? So yes. I've got this, this, is, this rather is large the, concept happening at the moment. This is the Mark DeVoe life coaching literary universe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it kind of is, yeah. Like you like knew it. it was going to happen, but I'm genuinely <laughs> excited about it because it all, things all seem to start, it's all based around a big diagram, a flow chart weirdly enough and we're going to be talking about organisation aren't we in this, oh, in we this will. interview yeah, yeah, coming yeah. up but i've got this big flow chart that that was just mapping my ideas out and then i started going all oh, that book 1 is that top those top 3 book 2 is the next 3 boxes and it's and it's working it's like for my mind anyway at least it's kind of like making sense so i'm excited so i will be i will be putting something on the bxp team this week to say okay what do you think am i mad but so this could. Oh be well, a, we all know that. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, don't put that up. So I will. I will I'll, I'll. I'll report back and let you know how it's going. Exciting I think it's gonna stuff. Be, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting. So as we mentioned, talking about organisation, um, we have a very interesting mix of different things today on today's interview, don't we?
1: Oh, this is this is fantastic interview. I, I great. Great fun talking to Anthony Johnston, who is a New York Times best-selling author and creator of Atomic Blonde, which is the comic book that was originally published as The Coldest City that was adapted into the movie starring Charlize Theron. Uh, and for more than 20 years, he's written books, graphic novels, video games, film and more. And now he's back with something a bit different different the dog sitter detective look i've got a copy here which is the first of a cozy crime series featuring Gwynnie Tuffle, a retired actress who takes up dog sitting to make ends meet but discovers she also has a knack for solving murders and we discuss what anthony learned from writing comics how he was inspired by the likes of david bowie and neil gaiman and how he wrote the book on being an
0: organized writer brilliant so let's dive in and listen to the multi-talented Anthony oh, yeah. Johnson chatting with Mark.
1: Anthony Johnson, welcome to the Best Seller Experiment. How are you today, sir? Oh, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Uh, absolute tickety-boo, thank you. And all the better for having dipped into The Dog Sitter Detective, this absolutely wonderful novel. What I love about this, folks, if you go to the website, this is where Anthony knows his readers, if you go to the website, it gives you the blurb, tells you what happens, but at the bottom it says, P.S. Nothing bad happens to the dogs. So there's an author who knows his readers. Uh, Anthony, tell us about The Dog Sitter Detective. Yeah, well, The Dogs, as you say, is a book which features
2: dogs in which nothing bad happens to them. Good, I mean, good, that's good, very good. important to me as a reader. I am <laughs> I am one of these people who, uh, you know, if I'm reading something that involves animals and the animals start getting maimed and injured and stuff, I just, I can't do it. Um, so more broadly, it is a cozy crime book, the first in a series, uh, featuring Gwynnie Tuffle, a retired actress <laughs> who, um, uh, she retired to look after her father because he was ill. Ten years later, he's now passed away, and she realises that there's no money. Uh, She has a house, but no actual funds. And so she decides that she's going to have to try and resume her acting career at the ripe old age of 60, which obviously (laughs) is not the easiest task in the world. Before then, however, she has a wedding to attend to. Her best friend, who's also an actress, much more successful and wealthy actress, is marrying an Italian business magnate uh, at her uh, her friend Tina, at Tina's Country House in Hayburnstead in Hertfordshire. And when he goes to the wedding, uh, feels a little sort of fish out of water. You know, she hasn't been socialising much for the last 10 years. Uh, but things are starting to go Okay. Until suddenly there is a terrible scream and it turns out that the groom has been murdered. And Tina, Gwynnie's friend, has been accused of the murder. So now it's up to her to uh, uncover the real culprit and prove that her friend's innocence. And she has to do this while looking after a very expensive (laughs) wedding gift of a pair of uh, purebred Saluki dogs. So uh, (laughs) that's where the dogs come into it. And she's uh, looking after them throughout the whole of the book while investigating this uh this murder at the wedding
1: it's it's a brilliant setup and each book in the series i believe is going to feature a different breed so that's
2: correct yeah i set myself a challenge basically because i, I started with sighthounds because i'm a sighthound owner right I love sight hounds. I know a lot about them. Uh, I owned them for you know fifteen years or more. Um, yeah, absolutely love them. So that was a kind of that was a fairly easy one for me to do. I didn't have to do a lot of research, you know. But I am a lifelong dog lover anyway. I mean, I grew up with a border collie in the family, for example. You know, all my extended family had dogs of various different breeds in my view. So uh, yeah, I thought it would just be interesting, and like I say, a bit of a challenge for myself if every book features a different freed for Gwynnie to, uh, to dog sit for while she, of course, is also stumbling across murders.
1: You do, you do know this is going to cause all sorts. You're going to start getting requests. You know that, don't you? Oh, I've already had them. them. Now, <laughs> <laughs> they're already coming in. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Now, the other big challenge here is you're writing a whodunit. And, you know, you've written spy thrillers, you've written uh, sort of, you know, uh, supernatural stories, you've written uh, Resident Evil, amongst other things. But a It, that kind of cosy crime Done is very much a, a genre of itself. There are reader expectations. How aware of you were of the genre when you went into this? And, and what were the big surprises in writing this? What were the biggest lessons learned? I was very aware
2: of it because although cozy crime as a specific subgenre is not something I'd written before, I'm a lifelong reader and lover of sort of puzzle-focused mysteries and mysteries in general. I mean, everything I write is a mystery, really, regardless of what genre or format it's in. You know, even Atomic Blonde is basically just a big long mystery. Um, I even managed to, you know, get a sort of a police procedural style murder mystery into a Marvel superhero book one at one point <laughs> back in <laughs> about 10 years ago or so. Let's uh, just, I always write mysteries. My spy thrillers are mysteries as well. So the mystery aspect was an easy one. Mm-hmm. And as I say, although I hadn't written cozy crime before, I have read plenty of it. Uh, I grew up reading, you know, children's mysteries like the famous five and the three investigators series from America, stuff like that. So, um, the uh, the Sherlock Holmes, the, what were they called, the Baker Street Irregular series, yes, so th- th- books like that, uh, and then graduated to things like K- uh, Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie and what have you. As I got older, so and I, I love watching um, mystery shows on TV, you know, movies, uh, crime and mystery movies and what have you. So, like I say, as a consumer, I was very aware of the genre and its yeah its tropes and conventions and all that sort of thing. Some of which I follow in The Dogs of Detective, and some of which I deliberately, you know, sort of skirt around and try to subvert or break or whatever. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a challenge. And I did learn a lot writing mm-hmm. that first one. Obviously, you always do when you're writing something that you haven't done before. Um, but also, again, it is still a mystery. And it is still something where you have to just kind of assemble the component parts of the puzzle. And that is something that I'm quite used to to doing. So uh, the, the main thing, the main element in this book that doesn't feature in a lot of my work is the humour. right? And that was actually a lot of very hard work because humour doesn't come, writing humour doesn't come naturally to me. I have to work very hard at it. But the problem is when you work hard at humour, if people can see you've worked hard yes. at it, it's not funny anymore. <laughs>
1: exactly, you can't force it, can you? You can't. Force so then it you it.
2: have to work even harder <laughs> to make it look as if you haven't worked very hard at it. It's a mm, uh, rod for my own back and all that. Um, but it was worth it, I think, because that is really part of the genre—the sort of the gentleness, the humour, uh, you know, sort of a light touch. I think is very important to a good cosy. Mm-hmm. It's certainly what I enjoy. When i'm reading or watching a a good cozy myself so like i say that's the part really where i had to kind of fully step out of my outside of my comfort zone because i'm just not used to doing that so much Um, but i think i pulled it off and
1: uh, and i had a lot of fun doing it no you absolutely did what's the phrase Uh, dying is easy comedy is hard Um, exactly tell us about Gwynnie as well she's a terrific invention and i would imagine there's when creating a character like this, the temptation is to make them young and sparky and, you know, uh, aim for that, maybe that YA market or even that 30s, you know, market. You've made a decision to put her in her 60s, which I think is a terrific decision. She's someone who's maybe her career is behind her, They're maybe thinks her best days are behind her. Um, but she's, you know, she's a, she's got a really sharp mind. She's a puzzle solver. Tell us where Gwenny came from.
2: All of that is absolutely true. Uh, there is obviously a temptation to do that sort of thing. My spy thrillers, the Bridget Sharp books, yeah. feature a, you know a young uh, woman for exactly that reason because it's interesting. There's a lot of room to grow, all that mm. sort of stuff, uh, and obviously you hope that it will appeal to a slightly younger audience as well. But with this book, for one thing, you know, let's face it, the audience for cozies is mostly, not exclusively, but mostly the older. reader so there's that um but there's also frankly there is a lack of representation of older Mm -hmm. women in fiction Uh, i mean crime fiction is actually better than most genres for representation of all kinds you know and, and continues to get better but still older women are pretty thin on the ground there's not that many of them so there was that element there were also story and plot elements where it would fit for somebody to be older in that position you know i needed somebody who has enough life experience uh that they can have been you know much like miss marple can have been an observer Mm. of human nature that sort of thing (laughs) and also i needed somebody obviously who had a lot of experience with dogs to show that she's very good with them and knows how to handle them um so it was a a whole bunch of different factors that came together to make that decision but as i say partly it was uh you know maybe even primarily it was just thinking well there's not a lot of them around so Mm. let's And I've always tried to sort of help with, you know, do what I can to help increase representation in any genre or format that I work in. So Mm. I thought, well, yeah, why not? Uh, It fits story-wise, but I think it would also be interesting. And it's a, it gives one an interesting perspective. I mean, you mentioned that she's worried that it's going to be, there are best days behind her and it's going to be very difficult to restart her career. Mm. I think all of us who reach a certain age kind of... (laughs) You know, can have a tendency to feel that way. We would get here and think, oh my God, have I done my best work? You know, is this it? Is it all downhill from here? Uh, I think that's something that a lot of people, once we pass 40, 50 years old, Mm -hmm. can relate to. So uh, so there, there was that as well. It was very, I thought that was something that would be interesting to put in there as a character element throughout the series that people,
1: as I say, could relate to in a very universal way. Brilliant! It's a great trust. A great. Well, let's go. Let's go back to your youth, Antony. Let's go way, way back. Because oh, I you, wish I could. <laughs> you start... <laughs> now you started out as a graphic designer, but that kind of you, you pivoted into comics and comic books. Tell us. Tell us about how how that 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 life changed for you and how that came about. So. I've this is such a cliche, but it's absolutely true. I've always been a storyteller.
2: I've always written my own stories, I've always made my own stories up. You know, I read comics from a very, very young age mm. and started reading books as soon as I sort of graduate from comics to books, but continued reading comics as well. um I've always, as I say, made up my own stories, but frankly, I come from you know a working class family in a working class town in the Midlands, and I did not know anybody mm. who worked in a creative field it just it wasn't a career option that had ever really been presented to me uh the one exception was my english teacher in high school had a book published Uh, he had a novel published when i was in his class at high school and that was one of the most exciting things that had ever you know as far as i was concerned that had ever happened in school um but like i say it wasn't something there was no path you know i couldn't see a way to to get there graphic design however especially as i was coming up just as computers were starting to take over design not quite i did learn you know all the sort of traditional methods of uh a paste up as we call it you know laying things out by hand and what have you but i also Macs was starting to and i've been using a Mac since 1988 uh right. my high yeah my high school got one and i produced two school magazines on it and that was kind of i think that was the beginning of the end because then i immediately wanted to carry on making magazines using this incredible digital uh at so yeah that was a prior career that i genuinely loved and i still keep my hand in with graphic design i do a lot of branding and graphics for the crime writers association for example right. um i do show art for podcasts and things like that just as a hobby you know as a kind of like i say to keep my hand in but i always wanted to be a writer there's no question about that and i was doing that in my spare time while i was a graphic designer both at agencies and then at publishers working on magazines um and like I say, I'd read comics my whole life. Uh, I, again, didn't really see a path to working in them until suddenly I did. Uh, <laughs> that actually came about through a book uh, that I reviewed for a friend while I was working at .NET Magazine at Future Publishing. A book called Writers on Comics Script Writing, uh, published by Titan Books, I believe. Yeah. Uh, which interviewed a whole bunch of comics writers both american and british uh some of whom were people i had read when i was a kid in 2000 ad like um you know garth ennis and people like that Mm. uh and it just kind of reminded me oh yeah actually yeah there are people who write these things and it is possible to sort of get into it um and so I did. I just kind of set my mind to it. And for the next few years, I just butted my head against the wall of uh, comics <laughs> and graphic novels to break into that industry and and managed it. You know, I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time and start getting published. And that was my career
1: then for the next 15 odd years. And it's, a, <clears throat> folks, I'll put a link in the show notes to Anthony's wiki entry. The comics, it's an astonishing roster of comics comics everyone's favorite comics you know it's just amazing you must have learned so much about storytelling in that period as well was that was that kind of your 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 writing school
2: yes absolutely i mean as i say i'd already been i'd always been writing in my spare time even before i kind of became a professional but absolutely yes when you have to deliver on deadline every month uh you know and you've you've got these ongoing comics you need a new issue it's got to be written yeah uh, it, you learn very very quickly how to put you know the basics of how to put a story together um and i mean as with any writer i look back at some of those older comics now and i think oh there's things i would have done differently i could have done this better and what have you but i'm still pretty proud of most of the work i did and uh yeah you know i'm a fairly fast learner and i did learn i had to learn very fast in order to sustain a career because i went full-time freelance in 2002 and by that point I'd only been a published comics writer for about 18 months. Uh, I'd been a professional writer in my spare time for a few years doing uh, writing like independent role-playing games and writing magazine articles about role-playing games and stuff but I'd only been a comics writer yeah for about a year and a half and then I was laid off the magazine I was working on got closed down Uh, so I took my severance Um, and thought, well, you know, stick that in the bank for a few months and uh, see if I can give this comics lark a go. And as I say, again, right place, right time as it happened. I just, uh, I did. And yeah. suddenly here I am. You know, it's all
1: gone by in a blur 20 odd years (laughs) later. Um, Well, let's not not rush it. Let's not rush it. Because in the middle of all that comics mayhem, you wrote a novel. I think, is it your debut novel, Frightening Curves? Can, yes, can, can you tell us about that? Because there's not the there's not a lot about this online. It's it's uh, all I can see is about someone called Phil London. He's a government agent. He's a psychic. And it came out in 2001. Tell, tell us about Frightening Curves. This is the thing when, uh, you know, people
2: think that obviously I started writing novels just
1: a few years ago,
2: but actually mm. my first published fiction was a novel <laughs> mm. <laughs> or kind of an extended novella. <laughs> right. Frightening Curves is in that kind of, it's a short novel it's or, a, or it's a long novella, depending on your <laughs> definitions. And it's illustrated as well. And that came about because I was, again, just happened to be in the right sort of time when web comics were first becoming a thing that people would read. Uh, And so my first ever comics, like non-professional comics work was done on the web. I would write short comic strips and, you know, artists that I'd met online would draw them and we'd put them up on various websites and stuff. And Frightening curve started out in that way. It was a serialized, illustrated story, which appeared weekly on, ah, now it was either op8.com or Reactor magazine but i think they were they were both run by the same person which is a guy called chad ward uh, who's a film director now and uh yeah it was serialized i wrote about a thousand words of text every week uh, arman chowdhury an illustrator and painter who works in los angeles he did digital paintings to accompany each of those thousand word chapters every week and that's how it would be published uh and then we got through and it was very popular that was the other thing that surprised everyone, I think, was it rapidly became the most popular thing on the website. Uh, and so we finished, well, we finished part one. We got to the end of part one and we were very, very tired <laughs> doing that <laughs> weekly, believe me. Uh, we were very tired and we said, oh, we'll take a break now. And then as it happened, somebody else that we both knew from on the online comics community was putting together a independent small press and he basically approached us scott brown his name is he approached us and said if you finish this i'll publish it as our first book wow which is crazy <laughs> it's like it's a strange format it's full color which is really expensive to print yeah uh, just what a bizarre thing to do but anyway so we did so i revised it slightly so that it wasn't quite so rigidly uh, you know, thousand words every chapter kind of thing. Uh, I finished it. Armand did a whole bunch of new digital paintings for it, and that's how it was published. Uh, and it won an award. It won the Best Horror Award at the Independent Publishers Awards at uh, Book Expo America
1: that year, which really? blew all of our minds. Fantastic. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Another big turning point for you, I think, was The Coldest City and Atomic Blonde. Yes. Uh, Tell us about that and what that meant, because many of us will know the movie uh, and many of us will know it came from a comic book. But tell us how how it originally came about. So I'm uh, I've
2: always loved Cold War spy fiction, John le Carré, you know, big fan, all that sort of thing. Um, And I love there there are several at the time. Anyway, there were several spy comics, but not a lot. Mm. There wasn't a lot being done and there wasn't anything that I felt quite captured that feeling of a Cold War Le Carre novel. Um, And at the time when I began writing it, firstly, the uh, 20th anniversary of the Berlin Wall coming down was Mm. imminent. Uh, It had actually gone by the time the book was published. (laughs) That (laughs) anniversary had long passed. Uh, (laughs) But when I started writing it, that anniversary was imminent. And I remember very distinctly as I think I was a, I was 17 years old watching the Berlin Wall come down yeah. live on TV. That was an, an enormous moment for all of us who mm. remember it happening at the time. Uh, you know, it's kind of stuck with me ever since watching those news broadcasts. So these things kind of came together in my mind, along with at the time I'd been doing a lot of work, frankly, for other people. Yeah. So what most People don't realize about comics is that a lot of the stuff you write, you're writing things that other people have created. You're writing it's you know installments uh, of story about characters that someone else created and someone else owns, and that's fine. You know you know that going in, you know that's the deal. But nevertheless, I was kind of itching. I'd also just started working in video games, which is the same deal where you don't yeah. own your own creations. Mm. Uh, so I was kind of itching to do something for myself just to kind of take a few months off and do something that was purely for myself again, as I had been doing at the start of my career. And so I did. I took a summer off. I took, I think, three months off, you know, cleared everything else away so that I had three months to spare and said, I'm going to write a John le Carré style Cold War graphic novel. And it's going to be gray and bleak and dour. (laughs) And it's going to have lots of twists and turns and, you know, and all this sort of thing. And that's exactly what I did. Uh, and it was illustrated by my friend Sam Hart who's a, a he's a Brit but he lives in Brazil he's lived there since he was like 7 years old or something right wow. um but he's also a fan of that kind of you know the black and white stark noirish cold yeah. war spy fiction so he was perfect uh and yeah and that was that was the graphic novel of course how I've just described it there is quite different <laughs> to the film to what you <laughs> yes. see on screen yeah. but that's I mean, you know, we can talk about this in more detail, and I've said this many times before. I was really, really happy with the screen adaptation. I was a co-producer on that project, so I had, yeah, the tiniest, tiniest bit of uh, input into it. But I was really happy with how uh, Dave handled it and decided to kind of, I mean, his, his thinking was, we can't, everybody's made a black and white noir. That's what you expect, you know, uh, and it's a bit dull. Can we make a noir that's actually really colourful? -hmm. And fast, and you know, fast moving and kinetic and filled with action. And I think the results speak for themselves. You absolutely can, but nobody had really done that before, and that really appealed to me. I thought that was a great idea. Uh, I I love things that haven't been done before. I do that myself a lot in uh, in my video games work. So yeah, I was really happy with all of that. And the story is actually not that different. You know, Mm. the characters are essentially the same. The story is essentially the same. So it's people look at it on its surface and see you know this fast moving action filled brightly colored uh film and then they look at the graphic novel and they assume that they have nothing to do with one another but actually the characters and the story are very very faithful uh to the graphic novel it's just the presentation of it that isn't and like i say i was in favor of that because i think if you'd taken just what was on the page and you know put it faithfully on screen honestly i think even i might have got a bit bored that's not what you want <laughs> in a film you know graphic novels sure Absolutely. but it's not what you want when you're
1: watching you know uh, moving images very good very good stuff and then let you moved on to the bridget sharp spy thriller she's this elite mi6 hacker tell us about bridget and and how she came about and how this kind of moved from comics into books because books you are the author. You do own all this stuff yourself. It is all your thing. Was that was that a very conscious decision again for you? Partly, yeah. I mean, like I say, in
2: the comics and graphic novels, it's kind of split because all of my original graphic novels, I do own. You know, those are my creations and I own the IP. Um, but, yeah, all my serialised comics work for people like Marvel and stuff, obviously, don't own any of that. Whereas books, like you say, it's the ownership is always with the author. Why did I write? <laughs> so, bearing in mind when this is happening... Atomic Blonde has been filmed and is about to go into post-production. Hmm. What should I write next? And bearing in mind that my literary agent, who deals with my some of my graphic novels work here in the UK, had been sort of on at me for a while to write another <laughs> novel. Uh, hmm. What should I write that people might expect from me next? And so naturally I thought, well, another spy novel. You know, yeah. for once in my life... Let's do the sensible thing. (laughs) Let's actually do what people want from me. Because I have a habit of not doing that. um, And flitting between genres and formats and stuff unexpectedly. Uh, But no, this time I thought, let's do what people actually expect from me. And write a spy thriller. And so that's what I did. But because this is me, the way I wanted to do it was, yes, with a female lead character, which is unusual in spy novels. Uh, She is a member of like a subculture uh as well you know goth and heavy metal subculture which Mm. most you know most spies certainly aren't and most readers probably aren't familiar with but i as it happens am very familiar with so i could use that and make it cyber espionage because obviously atomic blonde cold war historical i didn't want to do that again so instead i decided to well let's set this one in the modern day and use computers and the cyber espionage stuff against which i'm kind of familiar with and you know i know a bit more about that than most i think uh you know, I'm by no means an expert, but I know more than most and I have friends who definitely are experts that I can call upon for help and advice. And yeah, just I looked around and nobody else was doing that. Uh, There was nobody else that I could see that was doing quite that combination of things. And so I thought, well, at least I'll, it is what people kind of expect from me, you know, it's, you know, in the same milieu and stuff, but it's not uh, the same as anything else that's currently on the market. It will stand out. And so that's, Mm. that's how that, came about and then i decided to make her anglo-french just because i love france and any excuse
1: you know (laughs) fantastic now you talked about flitting there i mean it is it is very much a, a writer's urge to write the thing that they want and as as you said earlier, you know, you, you, you will read comics, you will read cosy crime, you will read all sorts of stuff. We all read different kind of novels, but there is a pressure on us, I think, to write the expected, to stick with the genre. But you're you a, a model of writer reinvention. I was looking at your author photo for interviews that you've done about the Resident Evil games, which is moody, desaturated colours, you know, versus the author photo for the dog sitter detective, which is colourful and warm and friendly, I mean, that kind of reinvention, flitting, whatever you want to call it, that's kind of sustained your career, though, hasn't it? Would you Would you say that? Well, it's
2: sustained my own interest in my career, yeah. yeah which yeah. I think is more, really more important. So th- the photos thing is quite funny. Uh, <laughs> I really like that, um, you know, that moody series photo that was actually taken by Chad Ward, the guy I mentioned earlier. Right, right. <laughs> um, when I was in Los Angeles for Atomic Blonde, I went to see him and we did a photo session. Uh But, yes, when we sold The Dog City Detective, obviously the publisher and my agent were like, it's not really a very cozy picture. Could you get a new one taken? And so I did, yes. Uh, Reinvention to me, most of the artists that I admire are people who do that. Right. You look at people like, say, David Bowie. Bowie, yeah. Or an author like Neil Gaiman. Mm. uh you know these are people who or a band to take the to go back to heavy metal my favorite heavy metal band is a band called paradise lost who have been going now for oh good lord 30 years and throughout their whole career have gone through you know they've gone from death metal to gothic metal to electronica to sort of straight ahead rock you know all kinds of stuff and the reason that all of these people do this is because it keeps them interested in their own career brian eno is another hero of mine yeah. similar sort of thing and that's that's how it is for me um it's if i had stuck to doing because frightening curves we didn't really talk about the genre or so but frightening curves as you mentioned it's a horror novel basically you know it's sort of like urban horror set in contemporary london i could have Built a career doing nothing but that. I'm sure I could have, because I've written quite a few horror video games like Dead Space and Resident Evil, as you mentioned. Uh, I have written other horror graphic novels and stuff since. You know, I could have built a career on that, but I would have been bored, I think. Um, You know, I I, I just think I would have, after maybe seven, eight, ten years of doing that, thought, my God, can I please do something else? You know? Um, And I am a big believer, as you mentioned in writing what i want to write Mm. you know in sort of following my own path and my own muse um all of my major successes and i genuinely miss every major success i have had in my career has come because i reached a point like i said with uh coldest city atomic blonde where i i I got to a point where i thought i need to do something for myself Mm. i just i don't care If nobody else wants to read it, I don't care if the market says I shouldn't do this. I really, really need to write this story. I need to do this myself. And honestly, every time I've done that, it's worked out pretty well. You know, I've (laughs) fortunately had quite a bit of success doing that. Um, So, and that became apparent to me fairly early on as well. So I've just continued doing that. Throughout my career. And like I say, it's why I'm still here, still enjoying what I do. I still love sitting down to write every day. I really do. Um, You know, not that I don't have the ups and downs that any writer does of, you know, the occasional days of sweating at the keyboard and going, oh my God, what have I done with my life? We all have that. Of course, I'm not immune to it like anybody else. Uh, But, you know, on the whole, I love sitting down to write every day. I love what I do. And I love the freedom that I have built for myself to do all these different things, because it means I am never, ever bored. I never worry that I've got myself stuck in a rut. Mm. And uh, to be clear, I probably could also have had more commercial success if I'd stuck to a single genre. You yeah. know, a few people have mentioned that to me, and it's probably true. I mean, who knows? You know, there's no way to to know for sure. But I probably could have had a more commercially successful career if I'd become known as that guy who does this yeah. one thing. You know, but like I say, I, I just would have got bored. I probably wouldn't actually still be doing it twenty years later because I'd have gone, no, no, no. Do you know what? I'm going to go back to magazines.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Now to get some level of success, as you, you know, writing all these comic books, uh, writing novels, working on games, you need to be fairly organized. So you literally wrote the book on this. You wrote a book called The Organized Writer. What led you to writing that? Tell us about that book and, and, and the biggest lessons learned from that.
2: Popular demand. I am quite, <laughs> quite happy to be able to g- say genuinely it was popular demand. So, um, I, have always been a fairly sort of organized person. You know, my, my partner always takes the mickey out of me for being the person who writes the lists. You know, yeah. I, am the, I am the man who makes the lists. <laughs> uh, and I've always been that guy. It's just my nature. When I worked in magazines, when I was working in magazine editorial, I was the guy who, you know, had things like the master spreadsheets of the page layouts right, and, right. you know, sort of made sure that we kept on track on the art side anyway, of all the scheduling and pre-press and that kind of thing. I was very good at, at keeping on top of that sort of stuff. When I went freelance, I thought, oh, well, I won't have to worry about that anymore. All I have to do is write my words, send off a script, send off an invoice. Hey, Presto, money turns up in my bank account. Brilliant. I won't have to do any of that sort of stuff. And, you know, you you can see where the pride goeth before a fall is coming here. Uh, I realized within a few years that that just simply wasn't the case. And what really did it for me was that I missed a deadline. And coming from the world of magazines where deadlines are absolutely sacrosanct. Like, you cannot miss a deadline because the press is going to roll. Um, That that was a real wake-up call for me. That was a real shock. I had never missed a deadline before in my life. Uh, And so that encouraged me to take a look at what I was doing, get myself organized. And so what I did was I... Scoured around online looking for uh, advice for how writers could get organised, looking for sort of productivity tips, as we call them these days. I'm not even sure that that was a, a term we used back then, because this would have been like 2005, 2006 I'm talking about. Um, and found some, and I found particularly um, getting things done. Uh, which is the, you know, the famous productivity book from America. And I I read that cover to cover and I thought, well, there's some good stuff in here, but there's a lot of it that is clearly aimed at middle managers Mm. um, and maybe even CEOs, but not at writers. You know, it's aimed at people who are on the move, who manage other people, whose day is filled with interruptions uh, and how to deal with that. And that's obviously not the life of a writer. So... I just started to make my own. And I took a few principles from getting things done. I acknowledge that, and I always have. Uh, But I largely just built my own version of that kind of system that allowed me to, yeah, work on many different projects at once, which is a necessity to making a living when you're writing comics in particular. Uh, Every comics writer is working on multiple projects at once. That's just how it works. Um, Meet my deadlines, maintain the quality and also, you know, maintain my quality of life, lower my stress levels, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it took, you know, a year or two to kind of build that system up, but it it worked. I realized, oh, actually I've got something here. It works. And so I wrote a post, not even a blog post, because I don't have a blog, but I wrote a post that I stuck up on my website uh, called The Organized Writer. And I... S- promoted it around to a few friends you know sort of I think social media was just starting to take off by that time so I posted it on you know online Um, and I expected that a few of my friends would read it you know a few fellow authors that sort of thing Uh, but actually within six months half a million people (laughs) looked at that page (laughs) and I thought oh wow okay there's clearly a lot of a lot more disorganized writers out there than I realized Mm. a lot more people in the same boat But then I didn't really think much else of it. I just left it there and I was glad that it was helping people, you know. Mm. Um, And then over the next few years, quite a few friends of mine, fellow writers, a couple of publishers said, you should turn that into a book. Why don't you expand that? Because they'd say like, oh, you know, you mention this, but you don't mention this. And I'd say, oh, well, that's because I do this bit as well. But I didn't put that in the article. And so, yeah, people would say, well, you should expand on this and turn it into a book. And ironically, I was so busy. (laughs) <laughs> that I didn't have time to do that for many years. But then, uh, I think it was after I'd written the second Brigitte Sharp book, I thought, actually, I could do this. I think the time is right, and I think I have the time to do it. And so I I kind of delayed... No, that was it. I was about to write the second Brigitte Sharp book. I right. was I delayed writing that by about three months in order to write The Organised Writer, and luckily my agent did not... <laughs> have a fit at me and i told her that i was going to do that um yeah and so just expanded the whole thing into a book and uh, and luckily yeah we found a, a wonderful publisher in bloomsbury who of course published the writers and artists yearbook so they mm. were a natural home for a book like this and it's yeah it's gone on to be quite popular uh i've hear from a lot of people who have read that book and tell me that it's genuinely helped them Uh, You know, take control of their calendar or their schedule or they've started using job sheets to track the stages of a project, that sort of thing. Um, You know, I make it quite clear in the book that you can follow the whole thing if you want to, but if you... Have aspects of your work that are actually that's fine, and you just need help with one particular thing, like you say your calendar or you know keep juggling multiple projects. Then just take that bit of the book, mm. you know, and use that by itself. That's fine. You know, you don't have to use the whole thing. And I hear from so many people who've done that, and uh, yeah, you know, as I say, I've found it really useful and helpful to them. That uh, it, it's really gratifying to hear that to know that there are people that I've been able to help get more organized and produce better work and this is the thing it's not organization for its own sake mm. the end goal is to maintain your quality and produce better work because you are more relaxed more confident uh you know more able to immerse yourself in your work creatively without worrying about everything else that's going on in the outside world and that's naturally going to re- produce better work for you so yeah it's uh, it's wonderful Gonna gonna
1: order a copy as soon as we stop talking. Um okay. <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk let's talk about um one thing that you did during lockdown, which I was fascinated by. You wrote and directed a short movie called Crossover Point, which is on YouTube, folks, and you can go go and check it out. Do check it out because people ask me about writing screenplays, and I say to them, the best thing you can do is write. Write and direct a five-minute movie because Absolutely. you'll see it you'll yes. see it go from script to production to the edit and you learn so much about writing. What I mean, apart from the the lockdown, was this something that you'd always wanted to do? What prompted that? And is it gonna to lead to to more screenwriting and more filmmaking?
2: Well, it wasn't actually <laughs> you're right, and I give people the same advice, but actually crossover point was not my first screenplay. Mm. <laughs> I, in Sorry. the wake of in the wake of no no no, in the wake of atomic blonde it's fine because it hasn't it's not public it's not sort of you know it's not not being produced or announced but in the wake of atomic blonde uh i pitched and sold a screenplay adapting another of my graphic novels right uh which i then wrote in 2018 i think start of 2018 something like that um uh and but and that's I mean, it's gone into, you know, development hell. Who knows whether it will ever be uh, produced? I've got you know, a few written, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know, that's how it goes. Uh, and I've, I've written spec teleplays and stuff as well. And, uh, you know, I've been in talks to write other screenplays. It's This is the life of a working yeah. writer, is you always have a, a million projects that might happen at some point. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, so Crossover Points, as I say, was not the first screenplay I'd written. But during lockdown... And this, again, it's such a cliche, but it's absolutely true. I literally, I woke up one morning and I was just lying in bed and I thought, well, obviously nobody can make a film during lockdown, but what if they had to? What if you had (laughs) to make a film during lockdown? How would you do it and what sort of story would it be? And within, again, massive cliche, within 10 minutes, I had pretty much the whole thing just in my head. And I immediately got up. You know, brushed my teeth, did the did the essentials, but then ran into my room <laughs> and furiously <laughs> typed it. And within a day, I had this script.
0: Wow.
2: Uh, it's, it's the sort of thing that, yeah, it, it's, like I say, it's such a cliche. It's the sort of thing that you hear people talk about and you think, oh, that's not real. But it really did happen. I mean, it's only happened that once and it'll probably never happen again, but it did happen that one time. And so... But the other thing is uh, you're in lockdown, so it's difficult to sort of get hold of people. And also, as people have probably guessed by now from what we've been talking about, I'm a fairly hands-on guy. I'm a fairly DIY kind of guy. I like being the guy in control. I like doing a lot of things myself, just in order to make sure that they get done the way I want them. Uh, You know, delegation is not a strong suit of mine, I'll happily (laughs) confess to that. I'm getting better at it, because I have run writer's rooms and stuff for games now as well, so I'm getting better at it. I've had to get better at it, but still. Um, So I recruited a couple of friends who are actors, you know, part-time jobbing actors, that sort of thing, uh, that I knew anyway, one of whom I'd met through the comics community uh, many years ago, Casey McKinnon. Uh, when she was producing a show about comics and uh, Moises Chuyan, who is a fellow podcaster. I knew him through podcasting, but I, as I say, I knew that they were also both actors. And so I asked them if they would be willing to do it. They said, yes, we made it. You mentioned that it's an education. For me, it was doubly so because, again, that DIY spirit, I wrote it, I directed it, I edited it, <laughs> I did the sound design for it. Uh, I did the sound editing for it. I basically did everything that wasn't the acting right. on, that, uh, on that film. So it really was an education, but it was a great one. It was a fun time. It was hard. That's the, that's the thing that you don't realize. Until you make a short film, you cannot appreciate oh, yeah. how much hard work is involved. Mm. I mean, this is a seven <laughs> or eight minute film. You'd think it would be no work at all. My goodness. So much work. Uh, happened, yeah. But also, yeah, loads and loads of fun.
1: Brilliant. And, and a Moby song at the end as well.
2: Oh, that's, I don't, I don't know Moby or anything. Not, we're not best buds, you know. Uh, Moby, bless him, has a, a library online that is available for independent filmmakers to use really? his music yeah 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 wow. no it's, it's like i think it's called moby mobysounds.com or so i don't know look it up you'll you'll find it um, but yeah you i mean you have to you have to sign a license and stuff yeah. but it's basically yeah, yeah, it's yeah. A free light it's a free license that promises you won't try and monetize the video uh, and right. you can't get anything off play everything right. on play is like yes. no you can't Spoken have anything it, yeah. off that it's know. been done um, <laughs> yeah. yeah but loads of his other music is just there available as long as you comply with the terms of the license it's incredible it's such a generous wow. thing for him to do yeah that's amazing that's amazing
1: well look this has been absolutely fantastic now dog sitter detective is not a standalone there's another one coming death in little venice it's coming next year 2024 that's- uh, more adventures from Gwynny. Can you tell us about anything about the dog in that one, the breed of dog, or, or is this all top secret? Is this all it, undercover? It's not top secret. It's in the blurb, in fact. If you go and look at
2: the website, you'll see there's a blurb for Death in Little Venice. It's a border collie.
1: Ah, oh, brilliant. Uh, so in <laughs> Death in
2: Little Venice, Gwynny is dog-sitting for a an ageing rock singer who is going off to do a concert in Dublin uh, over a holiday weekend. And he hires Gwynny to come and look after his... His border collie on his houseboat in Little Venice. Right. While he goes off to do this gig. But just as Gwynnie settles in with the dog and starts looking after it, and a carnival begins over the bankology weekend, the singer's body turns up. It turns out that actually he never made it out of the country. And now Gwynnie has to try and solve his
1: murder brilliant can't wait but until then folks the dog sitter detective is out now grab a copy and there's hundreds of comics amazing writing from anthony and it's been a real joy speaking to you today thank you so much and hope to speak to you again soon well, thank you very much for having me this has been great fun
0: wow it's uh we're, we're getting a, a stack of incredibly multi-talented authors mm-hmm. who've got like so many interests in different areas and most inspiringly have making a success of it because we've heard this over and over again, haven't we, Mark, of like creative authors. We, we keep getting new ideas. I mean, I know it's my biggest curse. Um, I mean, we've worked <laughs> in many different genres. You're, you're a screenwriter and an, an author. And there's tons of different things that we love to do. But Anthony's really, really nailing it, isn't he?
1: I think it is. And I think, I mean, to be honest, if you're going to be a creative person, you need to be interested in the world around you. You need to be interested in people in different genres and different ways of storytelling. You know, we you can you can you know stick with one thing or you can you know dip a toe into a bit of everything but i think if you are going to be a writer you need to be interested in the world and the people in it because those are your readers essentially that that's who you've got to appeal to those are the stories that we tell uh and it's how you develop your voice as well i think so um yeah i i I was fascinated by the idea that see whatever the genre he often writes a mystery and it got me thinking that is mystery at the heart of all storytelling, whatever the genre you write. And I think there's something in that. I think there is always some kind of riddle at the centre of a story, even if it's something as simple as, what happens next you know will they fall in love will they solve the crime will they finish the quest you know whatever the genre is you there is a kind of you know little mystery at the heart of it and, and actually i think because we were talking about this in um craft coaching uh last week uh i mean the the ultimate mystery at the heart of every story is who is this person your protagonist who are they what are they about what are we going to like them we're going to be you know disgusted by them we're going to be fascinated with them who are they what's their what's their thing you know that's the mystery at the heart of all storytelling so i think once you start thinking of it like that it sort of opens it up a bit for you
0: i like that i like that because we get a little bit too boxed in with genre you know Mm -hmm. if we're if we're writing um you know any any we pick our we pick our place if you like and we go right i'm going to do romance i'm going to do this i'm going to do that but you're right mystery really at the at the end of at the end of the day is just about continually keeping the reader on the hook because they're going to find something new out which and that's whether it's the unraveling of the characters mm-hmm. you know mission theme story backstory yeah. you because if you know if, if there's if there's no mystery then i mean that's what in in, in some ways that's what makes Life's so fascinating, isn't it? Like I, I just see life every single day as one massive mystery, and it keeps me fascinated by <laughs> what's going on because we don't we don't have the answers, we never will have the answers. So, well, it's
1: forty-two. I don't know if you've um, yeah, that's, that's the answer. Yeah,
0: well, yeah. interestingly, <laughs> forty-two, and this idea of getting past. 40, 40 and it all being done oh, well that's a great segue so mr d what, i love that what do you reckon <laughs> is there something in that is there something between those two years i mean we've we've passed 40 i know there's a lot of people listening to this podcast who might be coming up to that age um there's a lot of people that are past that age but what do you what do you think is are you, are you over the hill because there wasn't no birthday cards when you wasn't the 40th birthday it had the cards going <laughs> over the hill do you remember that yeah yeah it's yeah. probably well, there not was... that anymore it's probably 50 or 60 now but
1: i mean i guess it's all a matter of perspective what was that um show and the film boom boom tick with andrew garfield about the 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 broadway writer who wanted to get a show on broadway by the time he was 30 and he died before it happened but he show because he wrote rent and i've forgotten his name forgive me someone out there oh i remember out there. that yes but yeah. of course you know 30 is, is a big turning point for a lot of. It. and i struggled with 30 i was like 30 i haven't done half the things i want to go yeah i've got I, I, I said to my wife i haven't got anything done that i want to get done and she said well you're happily married to two kids and i was like apart from that um <laughs> Because <laughs> I I I'd, uh, I remember Harrison Ford did Star Wars when he was thirty five, and I was still acting at that age. I was saying, I've, I, "I'm not going to get Star Wars by the time I'm thirty five. This is a disaster." And and weirdly, it's around about that time that I started writing and doing writing seriously. And it's ten years ago when I was forty. That we were filming Robot Overlords, mm. and there, I think, and again, long-time listeners will have heard me say this a few times, but I was with our mutual friend Jeremy Mason uh, when we were shooting pickups at Pinewood, and we're standing on a soundstage at Pinewood Studios, and me and him used to write sketches after school, you know, and he's gone on to be a filmmaker, and I've gone on to be a writer. And we were both standing together, sort of nudging each other, going, God, what would our teenage selves say about the pair of us being on a soundstage at Pinewood? And then I said, they'd be going, what took us a bloody long? You know, know, so 40, I guess, was a key age. But this is the thing, I think, you know, as much as it's fun being young and vibrant, uh, You know, I'm 50. I still feel like I'm just getting started. I've still got so much more that I want to do. You know, life Um, in
0: us. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know know where you see it at its very worst, Mark? At its complete worst. Mm -hmm. I was coaching a, ready for this, a 19 year old musician who (laughs) who uttered these words to me. I don't even have to tell you, do I? No, they're going to say you I'm past exactly it. What, yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. And do you know why? Do you know why? It was because it was when Billie Eilish or Eilish, I don't know yeah, how you pronounce Billie her name, Eilish, yeah. um, Great artist, but she was like 16 or something at the time yeah. and she'd just broken like massively. And so from a 19 year old perspective, she'd missed the boat because there was this 16 year old who happened to be like a million selling artist, winning Grammys. And that meant that she'd missed the boat. So my, my perception on all of this, and it is always, it's always perspective, absolutely 100%. It's all made up in our funny little imaginations that we have. And, and writers have great ones, right? So we're really no, good at I this. Is that you, you look at your favourite author. And you look at when they pu- had their first major success and you then look at their age and then you look at your age and you go, oh, well, I'm done then, I'm past, like, past yeah. it. Get That's over, what it yeah. is. Yeah. Whereas I like to take the example of Louise Hay, who, who, who started a publishing company in her late 60s, yeah. uh, started to learn to ballroom dance in her 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mum is a great example. She, she joined a choir. She didn't, she'd never like, thought she was a singer. And she joined a choir in her sixties and absolutely loves it. It's like the mm. best thing she's ever done, and and it's like there's there's you can write. We have people in the academy who are retired who are writing their first yeah. book. It's absolutely, absolutely brilliant. Like so, well, if if you're in that if you're in that place, use it as fuel to the fire. I'd say, like if you see your favourite authors or you've written ten books um you know before you've started your first one use it as fuel to the fire but don't don't let it like stop no, you you can you, you no can point.
1: only run your own race you know we you can you are it's your story you know you and the other thing is if you are of a certain age of a certain vintage You've got all that life experience oh. behind you, which a nineteen-year-old won't have. You know, you are going to have so much more that you can draw on. That well is going to be so much deeper so and totally. richer. You know, so uh, no, I think. Um, I mean, there is. Let's let's not. You know, there is ageism. It is. A th- it's weirdly, I've encountered it, and it's kind of weird because I again, I I I, don't, I feel young, uh, and you know, there there are people who will tell, oh, no, you're too old. You know, I, it's. Uh, I have encountered it. Uh, already, bloody hell! But um but you know you have to get over that. I remember being young and people dismissing me because I was too young. You know, I think there you're always going to come up it's against like, things. You know, it's like
0: the Eddie our pear sketch, isn't it? Do you know, the sketch that about, about the pear, the pears that sit in the bowl, and he <laughs> says pears are the worst fruit in the world because they sit there and they're like and they're rock solid and they're like yeah, 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 yeah. And they're, you can't yeah. eat us yet, can't eat us yet. And then and they look around and right like, right now ripen and then they're like you can't even <laughs> yeah. right and it's almost like there's that so, so the thing about thing about book writing which I love and I think it's quite quite unique maybe to to writing is it. There, there, it doesn't. Age doesn't matter. Like there are a lot of things. Like, yeah, if you want to become a Premier, when Michael Owen played for Liverpool at sixteen, and I was in my twenties, I had that. Okay, maybe I am not going to make the Premier League. Right? <laughs> and, and you kind of know, you know, your, your body, your body starts to like ache a little bit. You know, Steven Gerrard's finished in his mid thirties. For goodness' sake, so um, there are certain careers or pursuits that you can do that are dictated by age, health, beauty unfortunately in many cases but you know what you can there is a person who's a hundred who's written a book written a book it's a, it's the value of the story and and like you say age i think books and the value of it matures with age i think the, the ultimate mantra for all this mark is like if you're still breathing it's not too
1: late right? exactly yeah absolutely you can be old so, and ugly and write a novel i'm testament to that <laughs>
0: <laughs> i think it's brilliant <laughs> well, we i think we should celebrate it because there's not many creative um pursuits where you get to do it for the rest of your life. There's no yeah. retiring from writing. You don't no, have that, to like take the golden um, handcuffs or the watch. So,
1: some some people have, but I've no intention. I remember having a conversation with a financial advisor about retirement and pensions and, you know, I'm I again, I'm 50. You know, technically I should be retiring in about 15-16 years or whatever it is, but no way. No way. I, unless, you know, it's uh something terrible happens but i keep going until
0: i drop my wonderful ex-neighbor who i love to death he passed away a few years ago he was in his 90s but he was in the welsh guard And he used to tell me, he used to shout over the fence as he handed me a glass of red wine. He was that kind of guy, just a glass of red wine (laughs) here over the fence. He'd say, Mark, I got my royalty check from the PRS today. And I'm like, royalty check? Oh, really? What's all that about? He said, I I played in the Royal Guard back in 1960. And he basically looks on like some LP um, of the Royal Guard player. And he was still getting a royalty check every three months in his 90s. So as a writer, you put any creative work out there into the world... And you will, you know, it might it, it might buy you a cup of tea, or it might buy you a lot more than a cup of tea. But the point mm-hmm. is, is that beyond your death, that, that money is going to st- keep coming in. So it, they, I think it's great. Just create, put it out there, let it let it flow back to you. Right? It's uh, it's all good. It's all good, folks. Um, the other thing that Anthony mentioned, which is really interesting, um, which is kind of linked to success and being a bit too humble is this idea of right time and right right place right time yeah he said that a couple of times didn't he and
1: uh you know i i think um i think very often we we take these narratives and we replay them in our heads and say oh wasn't i lucky to be there but you look at how hard anthony has worked and it's the old um uh you know Mark Twain thing: the harder I work, the luckier I get. He has worked very, very hard, and he wouldn't have been in that place all that time unless he was working that hard. So I think you you've got to have skin in the game. You're going to have mm. skin in the game to to make these things happen, and that means showing up and writing and failing, and then failing a bit less, and then eventually something comes along that actually works, and and you know, and because of that, you. You are in the right place and, and the right time when it happens, you know, uh, I the things that have happened to me uh, again, I can look back and go, oh, I was lucky. I was lucky I made that decision and I was lucky that I made that decision and I'm really lucky I met that person. But n- none of those things happen unless I'm kind of pushing things forward myself. I don't it's not like I sat at home one day and someone said, Do you want to write a movie about robots? You know, it's uh, it's. You, you got you got to have skin in the game you got to put yourself out there which is scary because it can it go is. horribly horribly wrong and there's rejection and failure and disaster and things not working and all that all that jazz but um i think the longer you play oh crombie said it brilliantly what was it he said you know the longer you dance naked in the rain the more likely you are to be struck by lightning so um
0: yeah 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 i think that. and i was looking at some quotes yesterday for the book i'm working on and came across this quote by bruce lee uh, about being like water and it was this whole idea of like you know water never tries to flow through something it always flows around it and so all of those rocks that will be in our pathway is part of it's part of it like honestly who who would expect who would expect to wake up one day and for not a single thing to go not to plan or to go wrong like it happens every single day for everyone like today I, I was working on Um, you know, audio problems with the microphone for the podcast. Like, okay, we've not even started the day and there's an audio problem. So it's like, you know, think about, even if it's just somebody getting in your way when you're rushing somewhere because you're late for whatever it is, it's like, let's just accept that this is how life is. And the same is true when you're writing a book. If you started writing a book and it was the simplest thing in the world... I could guarantee you it'd be the crappiest book ever. Like no one would be interested. There's no no conflict in the journey of writing a book. There'll be no conflict in the story. In fact, if there's no conflict in our life, we probably wouldn't write about conflict in our books, which is the thing which gets everyone sucked into it. So think of it as training, training for your characters. Like like anything that happens, what was it? Yeah. But again, we always go back to Brian Cranston, you know, No matter how bad something happens in your life, it will make a good story down the road. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's such a great truism, isn't it? So, I think it's really important for people to yeah enjoy it. Like, actually, start. This is this is this is the enlightened approach. It's like you get to a point where the thing that goes wrong in your day, you kind of like welcome, and you're like, okay, here you are, great, and you just and you don't you don't you don't react to it. You don't. of course there's someone going to be slower than you in front of you when you're rushing to get somewhere it just it's because it always happens right it's like just accept it laugh at it and then and then work out how you can use it in your story if you need to exactly. <laughs> it's yeah. like yeah. a million yeah. and one things you can do with it but yeah it's really interesting well folks so we've got a lot more that we want to talk about in the extended edition of this podcast and if you are a patron or you are an academy member you already have access to these uh, if you would love to get access then listen to what we're going to be talking about today we're going to be talking about Um, What Anthony talked about called flitting, Mark talked about writer reinvention, Mm -hmm. about how you can sustain your own interest in your writing um, and how it can turn out for the best. We're also going to talk about this idea of should you be focusing on one thing uh, or should you be following your heart if you want to look at lots of different things. If you've kind of got that Renaissance man kind of about you that wants to try lots of different Mm -hmm. things. We're also going to talk a little bit of, well, Mark's going to talk about how to make a short movie. I'm looking forward to this.
2: (laughs) This is brilliant.
0: (laughs) How to make. So um, if you're interested in that, because again, that's so relevant to writing as well. Um, We've got all of that waiting for you in this week's extended edition of the podcast. So, Pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support or if you're interested in joining the academy, the window is now open, folks, for a beginning of February. Uh, sorry, beginning of February. Beginning of September start. <laughs> and you have um, a few weeks to uh, go and check that out for the early birds. Um, and then I think it's mid-August is the deadline for that, so we do pop along to that. But, um, yeah, thanks so much, folks, and we'll see you on the other side. So in the extended mark, we talked about... Um, This idea of being organized in project management. And I did say that there is one tool that I've discovered online which I've started using um, as a kind of ex project manager, some simplified way of keeping track of everything because it'd be brilliant for like planning stories as well. And I'm not going to reveal it on the podcast, folks, because I'm going to say go over to the newsletter and I will put it in the next week's edition of the newsletter. So go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash. Uh, newsletter or just go to the main website click on the newsletter tab put in your email address and join our weekly update of the podcast and i'll drop i'll be starting to drop quite a few cool little handy tips for writing in that newsletter as well so make sure you get onto that as soon as possible so mark what celebrations and wins do we have this week so so much good news
1: so much good news where do i start where do i start let's start with alex over on the Academy. Uh, so Alex, regular at my surgeries uh, and, and craft coaching. I'm sure he's in your life coaching as well, Mr. E. Alex Waite, just absolutely brilliant, brilliant, Wonderful uh, brilliant guy. Being. Yeah, and uh, he says, um, I've got solid women of my story. I've had two solid breakthroughs in the last week, and he's, he's making a public declaration. And breakthrough number one, he's tried many different ways of tackling. He's writing in a pretty epic fantasy story, and he found it frustrating. The words haven't come as easily because he writes scripts. He's worked in animation. Is a really good screenwriter, uh, and he says the obvious solution, in respect, is, is to treat my story like a script. I've blocked out the chapters like I would scenes in a film everything's become a lot easier, been averaging 800 plus words a day per cent. Now, you know, talk about being organized. We talked about that. Alex is taking, you know, something that he's familiar with and repurposing it for novel writing, uh, which is great. Uh, breakthrough 2, so he was having trouble with his antagonist uh, and he felt the motivations were a bit thin and they didn't really feel alive. But he was listening uh, to a history podcast about a war during the Middle Ages and he found a person to base his character on and the events surrounding him. And after that, Everything else fell into place, uh, even some ideas for the next book. So, you know, still from history, folks, it works. I, view I do it all the time. Um, so Alex has a public declaration. He's now 49,000 words in. His goal is to finish another 100,000 by the end of the year for the first draft. So he's put the 12th of December, uh, which is a nice feel to it, that is in the diary, Alex.
0: I'll be in and touch, you, so good luck with do you know what the coolest thing about having Alex in the Academy is you, we get to hang out with a guy who's worked on, he was the lead character animator in Happy Feet. Oh, no, I uh, He <laughs> works on Peter Rabbit, The Woodleys, Legend of the Guardian, Georgia the Jungle. Like These are the kind of cool people you get to hang out with and chat with uh, in the Academy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, brilliant. And we're really, really happy for you, Alex. Uh, also on the Academy, Anne Woodward. After
1: seventy plus rejections, I'm going to say that again. Seventy plus rejections from agents and publishers. I took Mr. Stay's advice. Oh dear, where's this going? <laughs> I, I, took, I, I took Mr. Stay's advice and gave my novel a new name. Last week, I received my first full manuscript request from a publisher. <laughs> Thank you, That's Mr. Stay. Brilliant. Now let's just say, and I I don't know if the title. You know, I. I think it's your writing, Anne. I think that's what got you the full first manuscript request. The title, you know, I think it's your writing. I think the quality. Anne is brilliant. Again, regular, all the surgeries, just superb. So congrats on that, Anne full manuscript request who knows it might be okay sorry it's not for us or it could be this is where it
0: all begins we don't know but either way that's an incredible achievement and, and huge congrats on that it's massive Anne and it's and it is just so inspiring because it's about persistency yeah. it doesn't matter how many rejections you've had I mean 70 rejections Anne the fact you've, you've kept going through all of that is testament to your determination to make this happen and to keep going until someone like picks it up and and i do think i think you know the type for me the title changing the title is a bit like with the stories we hear about how when people change the book cover it freshens your things up it maybe gives you a new sense of kind of enthusiasm over it as well and so yeah i think brilliant brilliant well done well
1: right this is this is a biggie this is amazing right Susie edge who's been on the podcast and we know she's coming back on again she did a deep dive on tiktok I'll put a link in the show notes you can check it out, folks. This is one of the rewards you get as a Patreon supporter or an academic, you get access to these brilliant deep dives. And they're not just from any old Tom, Dick or Harry. Uh, they're from people who know what they're on about because Susie Edge has been shortlisted in the TikTok Book Awards, in the category of BookTok Author of the Year, shortlisted. Unbelievable! <laughs> That's amazing. She's uh, so. This is this is fantastic. This is just brilliant. So, Susie, we've got everything crossed for you. Wow. Susie's TikToks what, are amazing. I'm sure you've come across them if you're on TikTok. They're just brilliant.
0: What would happen? I mean, and how big is this shortlist? Are we any ideas, Mark? I
1: don't think it's very big at all. Well, because you know, so like we're uh,
0: talking, I mean, TikTok. I mean that that massive, if you man. well to be honest it's it's like it's like any it's like, it's like getting nominated for an oscar isn't it it's almost like you know great if you win but man if you get a nomination that's yeah. huge so deal. susie we have everything crossed for you and folks you know just watch this space it's unbelievable brilliant
1: fantastic now 200 words a day uh this is our free challenge to everyone now I know there are some people who can't write every day I uh, find it difficult to write every day. Uh, but, you know, I think if you want to build a habit, just writing 200 words a day, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, in any little space of time, I do it every day. It helps create a writing habit. And we there's a, there's a lovely blog from Diane Wordsworth on how the 200 Words a Day Challenge helped her finish her book. I'm going to put a link in the show notes so that Diane is one of those people who's tweeting every day with us. Uh, and also Jenny Roman, who is at slightly turquoise on Twitter. She says, woo, I've completed 200 days of the 200 words a day challenge without missing a day. Go me, go you. So Jenny, Diane, you know, this is it. It's building that habit, getting into the habit and it just, it increases your productivity. It's, it's just fantastic. So congrats for both of you. This is absolutely Brilliant. brilliant. Well, well done. Absolutely brilliant. Um, uh karen story another regular in the academy who who i mean we've mentioned her and her short story competitions before and how she just keeps knocking it out of the park. and she uh, she put a post up in the wins section in the academy she said okay this is getting embarrassing now because how many short story competitions listings can i keep posting here without sounding like i'm making this up and she says uh this one is a competition she can't name yet First prize is £1,000, but honestly, I'll be just be happy if it gets onto the shortlist, as that's another published anthology that a story of mine will be included in. And Mr. D is absolutely right about keeping spreadsheets for everything. There we go. We talked about organising. She that, says, didn't we? Yeah. I have one for my short stories. Yeah, I have one for my short stories, which states when I've submitted, which story and when the long list comes out. It's amazing how not all competitions email you when you've made a listing. Can you believe that? I've just been looking at my spreadsheet and saw the competition long list was due out early July, figured I wasn't on it. Then remembered it happened before there was a competition that didn't email their long listers, And there it was, the story I submitted to them on the long list. So that's just fantastic. Absolutely. brilliant! Congrats, Karen.
0: Huge. Well done, Karen. And if you miss the extended, Mark and I talk about the one spreadsheet, it's like the one ring, um, that without that spreadsheet, we would not have been able to do or keep up with this podcast. And it's something we started before we started the podcast. And to this day, it's updated a couple of times a week. So, yeah, go check out the importance of spreadsheets in your planning. It's very, very interesting.
1: And we talk about persistence in this game. We talk about overcoming, you know, your fears. We talk about putting yourself out there and becoming an author. Angela C. Nurse, a big supporter in the BXP group. Uh, she writes amazing crime novels. Do check her out. I'll put a link in the show notes uh, so you can check out her writing. Well, she's uh, doing uh, an online event uh, with the it's the UK Crime Book Club on August 13th at 1pm. She's, she's going to be talking about private investigator fiction with Wendy Jones, James Murphy. Angela Nurse is on there. Do check that out. Uh, She's going to be absolutely brilliant. She's been, again, Angela, I think she's just started a TikTok channel as well. I think inspired maybe by Susie. You know, this is people overcoming, uh, gosh, do I need to be on social media? Do I need to be that person? But overcoming it, putting themselves out there and
0: sort of reaping the rewards. This is all good stuff. Well done to everyone. And thank you to everyone who's um, sharing sharing your wins and declaring your dreams. Uh, Do keep doing them. Keep sending them to us. Um, pop along to well all the different socials mark aren't there is a good way of getting in contact with us
1: yeah drop us a line on facebook with bestseller experiment twitter and instagram is at bestseller xp we are also at bestsellerxp on threads. Yes, we're Whoa. on there. We're on the threads. We're one uh, yeah, of the few million. Not, I'm not sure if it's worth it yet. But anyway, we'll see. We're on there. Drop mm, us a line. Great. Um, and uh, just remembered, I need to log in, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't checked all day. Uh, but also, if you go to bestsellerexperiment.com, there's a contact tab there where you can drop us a line.
0: Brilliant. And if you would like to do the 200-word challenge, simply go to 200 word challenge.com com it's that simple sign up pop your email address in and you will be off and running and if you would like to join mark and i um, becoming your mentors and coaches in the bestseller academy if you'd like to join our september intake then pop along now academy.bestsellerexperiment.com, put your application in and you'll heal back heal back from us very very soon so mark have a great great week we hope that you, you all are inspired today to get organized to to try all those different things out that you've always wanted to try. and Make a uh, movie. And make a movie. Absolutely. (laughs) Brilliant. So have a great writing week, everyone. And until next week, it's a goodbye from Mark 1. And a goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.